0: This is Issues in Perspective with Dr. Jem Ackman, President of Grace University. Issues in Perspective provides a weekly overview of news that pertains to your Christian life and is designed to help you discern and interpret issues that affect you in light of God's truth. Here is Dr. Jem Ackman to help you think biblically about these issues. Welcome and thank you for being with me today on our program Issues in Perspective. In the first perspective on today's program, I want to do a little bit of history. Comparing the Faith of Presidents Jefferson and Lincoln First, the faith of President Thomas Jefferson This coming November, the Smithsonian Institution's Museum of American History will exhibit a cut-and-paste Bible of 86 pages, the work of Thomas Jefferson Jefferson was a child of the European Enlightenment and was certainly one of its most passionate advocates in the United States Jefferson adopted the anti-supernaturalism of the Enlightenment and used that bias when he reached his conclusions about Jesus. He revered Jesus as the first of human sages, they're his words, and regarded his ethical system articulated in the Sermon on the Mount as superior to all others. Jefferson actually produced two Bibles. The first was produced in 1804, as professor of religion, Boston University, Professor Stephen Prothero says, quote, he sat down in the White House with two Bibles and one razor, intent on dividing the true words of Jesus from those put into his mouth, and these are Jefferson's words, by the corruptions of schismatizing followers, quotes that quote. The result was his book entitled The Philosophy of Jesus of Nazareth, a completely abridged account of Jesus' life using his sayings. That book is now lost. We do not have a copy of it. In that work, which Jefferson referred to many times in his letters, Jesus prayed to God and affirmed life death or death, but he was not born in a manger and did not atone for sin on the cross. In 1820, after Jefferson had retired from public service, he produced a second book entitled Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth, in which he sought to excise passages, and these are his words, of vulgar ignorance, of things impossible, of superstitions, fanaticisms, and fabrications, close that quote from Jefferson. Jefferson arranged the material in this book, The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth, chronologically, and included both the sayings and actions of Jesus, and he included passages in both English, French, Latin, and Greek. Jefferson began his book with the Roman decree to tax the world and ended his book with this verse. There laid they Jesus and rolled a great stone to the door of the sepulcher and departed. There is no virgin birth in Jefferson's Bible. There's no substitutionary death, substitutionary atonement, and there's no resurrection in Jefferson's account of Jesus. In other writings and letters, Jesus Jesus is also depicted in anti-supernatural ways. Jefferson adamantly rejected the Nicene Creed of A.D. 325, which defended both the deity and humanity of Jesus Christ. Jefferson also outrightly rejected the doctrine of the Trinity, calling it mere abracadabra and hocus-pocus fantasism. They are his words. For Jefferson, the sum of all religion is fear God and love thy neighbor. And they are his words, of course, quoting the New Testament. The tragedy, however, of Thomas Jefferson is that he understood the moral and ethical implications of Christianity, but rejected its theological foundation. By that definition, Thomas Jefferson was not a Christian. All evidence indicates that he died a Unitarian in his convictions. Thomas Jefferson represented what C.S. Lewis talks about in his book, Mere Christianity. Jefferson tried to sit on the fence. He tried to have a moral Jesus, a sage, a wise man, an ethicist. But he could not embrace Jesus, the God-man. And therefore, his Bible, there are two copies, one we do not have. The second one, The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth, we do. And he had taken his razor and cut out all the supernatural aspects of Jesus' public ministry and all the supernatural teachings of Jesus, and he ends his book with Jesus in the grave, not the resurrection. Thomas Jefferson is one of our more tragic figures in American history, not for what he did, not for what he accomplished, but for what he believed when it came to Jesus Christ. Second is the faith of President Abraham Lincoln, a very different story. Lincoln was born into a Baptist family in Kentucky, and his early life was surrounded by Baptist teachings. However, what evidence we have, and there isn't a great deal actually in his early life about his faith, indicates that he was deistic in his thinking. For Lincoln, God was not personal. He created the world, he set it up to work on perfect natural law, but this personal idea of God. He could not speak of God in an intimate, loving manner. Lincoln read works of authors who challenged traditional Baptist teaching and Baptist Christianity. He basically rejected those Baptistic teachings. But after Lincoln became president, the realities of the Civil War had a profound effect on his religious thinking. Lincoln was impatient with those who believed that they knew with certainty what God was doing in the Civil War and whose side God was on. However, it was the death of his son, Willie, on February the 20th, 1862, that seems to have been a turning point in Lincoln's views, his attitude, his theology, and his beliefs. Phineas Densmore Gurley, who was pastor of the New York Avenue Presbyterian Church in Washington... Gave the eulogy at Willie's funeral. Lincoln was so moved by Gurley's eulogy that he asked for a written copy. In that eulogy, Gurley spoke of the mystery of God's will. He wrote, It is comforting on such an occasion as this to get a clear and scriptural view of pro- the providence of God. Lincoln began to change his views about God. God is personal, God is loving even in times of extreme sorrow and grief, which he experienced with the death of his son, Willie. The events surrounding Willie's life indicate a weighty change in Lincoln's thinking. These are some of the manifestations of that change. The Emancipation Proclamation, which would be issued in early 1863. Lincoln wanted the war to be more than simply preserving the Union, It had to excise from American civilization the moral evil of slavery. When you read his Gettysburg Address, delivered in the fall of 1863, you see a man who's definitely processing many things as they relate to divine providence. But the influence of Pastor Gurley, again, Phineas Densmore Gurley, a Presbyterian pastor at the New York Avenue Presbyterian Church, where Abraham Lincoln and his wife Mary attended church, had a profound influence on him. Gurley was a graduate of Princeton Seminary and studied under the great theologian Charles Hodge. Gurley's New York Avenue Presbyterian Church, where Lincoln and Mary worship, had sermon after sermon after sermon, many borrowing from the phrases and the theology of Charles Hodge. This began to work its way into Lincoln's speeches. Especially important is an undated musing by Abraham Lincoln called Meditation on the Divine Will. This was placed in writing on a small piece of lined paper that was not discovered until after Lincoln died. Lincoln concludes in these musings, this Meditation on the Divine Will, that God is personal, but he does not take sides. His ways are above our ways. Both sides in this civil war, he would say, pray to the same God, read the same Bible, and argue that God is on their respective sides. But, Lincoln concluded, God is above all this, judging the nation for the sin of slavery. He would say, we are the mere human instrumentalities of God as he accomplishes his purposes, even in the United States. And we see Lincoln's themes about God and his providence and his sovereignty and his goodness and his grace in the second inaugural address. In my view, this is one of the most significant inaugural addresses ever given by a president. It pales in significance to anything else. It is so important. It is so significant. Lincoln argued in that very powerful inaugural address that God is purifying the nation There is no timetable to what he's doing. There's no date that we can discern when he'll complete his work. But in the meantime, knowing that the Civil War was coming to an end, that he believed the South would be defeated, we must commit to binding up the nation's wounds, he said. We must have a spirit of forgiveness, in that very famous statement from his address, with malice toward none, with charity for all. You see in Lincoln's Second Inaugural Address the themes of biblical Christianity, forgiveness, grace, compassion, an understanding that God is above all that's happening. We cannot assign him to one side or the other. We are the mere human instrumentalities, a very favorite phrase of Lincoln, in God accomplishing his purposes. Now, there are two other things I want to say about President Lincoln, and they are not so much about his personal faith, but how the nation looked at him. When he died, of course, as you know, he was assassinated. His assassination was placed in the context of redemption. The nation went way beyond what biblically they had the right to do. But his death was a cleansing death, almost an atoning death for the nation's sins of slavery. And that very famous hymn that was sung during the Civil War and would be sung even today, the Battle Hymn of the Republic, signifies that there is a divine purpose to the war, that God is purifying the nation. And that is how the entire Civil War, and especially President Lincoln, was viewed after his death. And that whole perspective on Abraham Lincoln is one of the most challenging, one of the most profound, one of the most perplexing, to try to discern what Lincoln was thinking and where his personal faith was. I have no doubt in my reading of Lincoln's life, and especially a new biography by Ronald C. White, that it was the death of Willie and then the influence of that Presbyterian pastor at New York Avenue Presbyterian uh, Church in Washington, D.C., that influenced Lincoln. And I believe Lincoln made a personal decision of faith. And I see it in his writings, I see it in his musings, and I see it in that undated meditation on the divine will. And so as I conclude this perspective, what a contrast between the faith and perspective of Thomas Jefferson and the faith and perspective of Abraham Lincoln. It's all the difference in the world, and it's profoundly important that we come to terms with that. In our second perspective on the program today, I want to return to the Middle East and just to surface a few thoughts again again about Israel. The significant changes sweeping through the Middle East will have acute implications for Israel. At this point, it's impossible to deduce these implications in their entirety, but there are a few hints. First of all, I want to make a comment about the Goldstone Report which is a report that resulted from a fact-finding mission led by Richard Goldstone on the Gaza War of 2008-2009, a couple of years ago. That was done for the United Nations Human Rights Council. Goldstone has written a powerful follow-up article in which he reaches some different conclusions than his original report. He reports that Israel has dedicated significant resources to investigating over 400 allegations of operational misconduct during the Gaza war. But Hamas has not conducted any investigations into the launching of rocket or mortar attacks against Israel. The crimes of Hamas were obviously intentional, Goldstone says, and meet the criterion even for war crimes, because, and these are his words, they were purposefully and indiscriminately aimed at civilian targets. Goldstone also reports that when it came to Israel, there were individual incidents of attacking civilians, but civilians were not intentionally targeted as a matter of government policy. Perhaps Goldstone is naive to expect a terrorist group such as Hamas to investigate its own war crimes because its very policy is to destroy the state of Israel. But this follow-up essay by Richard Goldstone, who is quite critical of Israel in the Gaza war, shows that Israel is far more transparent, a far more transparent democracy, and holds its military accountable to a degree unseen in any Arab or any Muslim nation in the Middle East. Israel deserves the unqualified support of the United States. It is truly the only viable democratic open society of the Middle East. And this Goldstone essay, with reflections on the original report, illustrate that powerfully again. Second... Israel may soon face one of its greatest challenges since its founding in 1948 as a modern nation state. This coming fall of 2011, the United Nations may vote on welcoming the state of Palestine as a member whose territory would include all of the West Bank, Gaza, and East Jerusalem. The Palestinian Authority has been steadily building support for such a resolution. If it is passed, then Israel would be occupying land belonging to a fellow UN member. Indeed, Ehud Barak, Israel's defense minister, has stated, quote, "We are facing a diplomatic political tsunami that the majority of the public is unaware of and will peak in September. It is a very dangerous situation, one that requires action." Close that quote from Ehud Barak. Palestinian leaders are emboldened by this prospect that the UN and they are in no mood to compromise very much with Israel. They still demand a total freeze on all settlements in the West Bank by Israel as a condition for any discussions whatsoever. Understandably, because of all the change sweeping the Middle East, Israel is extremely cautious about making significant concessions to anything right now. Nonetheless, Palestinian Authority's Prime Minister Salam Fayyad declared in September 2009 that his government would be ready for independent statehood in two years. President Obama said last September in 2010 that the framework for an independent Palestinian state would be declared in about a year, apparently giving support to this idea. Furthermore, the European Union, the United Nations, and Russia have all declared that the 1967 lines on the map should be the starting point for negotiations between Israel and the Palestinians. This would, of course, mean that Israel would need to give up Jerusalem. Fortunately, at least for now, Obama has not backed that idea. Israel has argued throughout all of its negotiations with the Palestinians that the fundamental issue is that the Palestinians refuse to openly accept that Israel is a Jewish state, and they continue to support virulent, violent anti-Israel incitement and praise violence on the airwaves of Palestinian radio. The other absurdity of declaring a Palestinian state without any negotiations with Israel is the division between the Palestinian Authority, which rules the West Bank, and Hamas, which rules Gaza. How can there be a state when these two entities despise each other and have fought a civil war against one another? Nevertheless, if a vote by the U.N. General Assembly were held today on admitting a Palestinian state as a member, more than 100 nations would vote yes, meaning it would pass. The United States has no veto power in the General Assembly like it does in the Security Council. In other words, Israel would be further diplomatically isolated in the United Nations. And its settlements on the West Bank and its rule over Jerusalem would be illegal, as far as the UN goes. This would be a veritable disaster for Israel. Finally, just a note about Iran. No matter what is occurring in the Middle East right now, the fundamental issue remains the growing power of Iran. As New York Times reporter David Sanger argues, containing Iran's power remains U.S. goal in the Middle East. Every decision from Libya to Yemen to Bahrain to Syria is being examined under the prism of how it will affect what until mid-January was the dominating policy of the Obama administration, containing Iran's nuclear progress. That's why the United States sent a strong message when it aided Libyan rebels. Iran, take notice. We can still do military action. Its silence when Saudi Arabia sent troops into Bahrain to quell Shiite demonstrations shows Iran that we will support Saudi Arabia. But the greatest concern is, of course, Israel. If Iran acquires nuclear weapons, does anyone really believe that Iran would not threaten Israel? And would Israel stand by and allow Iran to acquire such weapons? Will there be a war between Israel and Iran? The United States must act decisively when it comes to Iran. Right now, every action seems to be viewed through the diplomatic prism of Iran, and that is the right prism to have. Our prayer should be that God will grant the United States and the world community great wisdom when it comes to dealing with Iran. In our short final third perspective, I want to say a brief word about world population threat. I recently read an essay that reminded me of 1798 British clergyman named Thomas Malthus who argued that human population growth would exceed the world's ability to feed that population. And then in 1968, Robert McNamara, who was then president of the World Bank, spoke of the mushrooming crowd of population explosion. About the same time, Paul Ehrlich published a book called The Population Bomb, in which he argued that we must have population control at home, hopefully through a system of incentives and penalties, but by compulsion if voluntary methods fail. The Club of Rome in the early 70s issued its famous report, The Limits of Growth. Doomed-day speculations about population. That led China to force abortions, and the birth weight wildly has skewed against baby girls. I talked about that on last week's issues. In India in the mid-1970s, there was a mass campaign of assembly line sterilizations. In South Africa and Namibia, there were policies aimed at targeting young women, given forced contraceptive injections without their consent. So where is the world's population in 2011? In the 200 years since Thomas Malthus' dire predictions, the world population has risen sixfold. Over 6 billion people, and life expectancy has more than doubled. Chinese people today are better fed than ever in their whole history. Among nations with some of the largest and most crowded populations in the world, India, China come to mind, we're seeing the greatest economic takeoff imaginable. And many of the nations that tried to push down their birth rates are now frantically trying to encourage their people to have more children. And of course, Japan comes to mind. Their populations are rapidly aging, and they must grow their populations. Dear people, technology and, if I might add, God's common grace have both permitted the world to reach with significant population growth and to deal with it, not in the cataclysmic way in which mouth is predicted but in reasonable ways. And some of the unreasonable, ludicrous government programs like China and even parts of Japan, they are now facing significant challenges. Not so much to overpopulation, but in China, a huge male surplus. And in a country like Japan, they don't have enough people working to support their aging population. And those policies are the government's fault. Let's be very cautious therefore, when it comes to population doom and gloom scenarios, what history has shown us is that that's not necessarily the way in which it's going to work out. We have to view people and the whole population issue the way God views it. And it is reasonable, it is important for us to understand what is happening when it comes to population growth. But it does not necessarily always mean that doom and gloom scenarios will result. And where we are today helps us to understand that. May God give us wisdom and grace as we approach even thinking biblically about issues like population.